Revelation chapter 13. Continuing our verse-by-verse look at this wonderful uh, last book of the Bible. The uh, text for this morning is just going to be the first uh, four verses of Revelation 13 as we begin this uh, very intriguing study, I personally think anyway, Revelation 13 was uh, one of the one of the highlights that I was looking forward to when we decided to start our study of uh, Revelation. And that is primarily because there is so much information here about the future world that it is almost impossible to to disregard if we just take the plain meaning of of the text we get just a myriad of information about what is going to happen in the future and we also get a good look at some of the things that are happening in our world today and we live in an absolute or a time when truth is under absolute assault and uh, this is it's really unlike any time in my lifetime anyway uh, where everything in this world the very foundations of the created order are under assault Uh, you can't hardly go a day without uh, reading about some leader in christianity who is renouncing their faith uh and you can't go an hour if you're <laughs> paying any attention at all to the news without uh, some story about some aspect of this creation that's being deconstructed, whether it is uh, uh, the relationship between a man and a woman, whatever, uh, whether or not it's what is a man or what is a woman, all of these very uh, foundational issues are under assault. Uh, The idea that an all-knowing, all-powerful God created the world in six days, I mean, we, you know, that, that that was done away with in society 50, 60 years ago. Uh, at least that is that is long gone. Uh, the very political structures of our nation are under assault. I'm not sure if you've seen uh, actual elected representatives calling for the tearing up the Constitution, burning down the Supreme Court, get rid of it all, and start over again. This is this is the world uh, we live in. So it goes without saying that when the Bible says something about what will happen in the future, it, it has to be fact-checked. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no doubt about that in this world that we live in. So as we come to Revelation chapter 13, it becomes very obvious that this world is headed towards a one-world government that is dictatorial, oppressive, and being run by a satanic cult. Uh, that's, that is the meaning of the text, and we will get into some of that today. And so when the world, when you, if you have an idea in your head like that and you dare to uh, state it to another person, uh, stand by to be scoffed at. However, when we come to Revelation 13, that, that's exactly what is going to be described here, particularly in, our, in the first four verses here, it becomes unavoidable that the world is headed towards a satanic one-world government that will dominate every single person that is living on this world during the tribulation period. So it, why should we, as believers, even if we, we understand from the Bible that it, that it teaches that uh, every true believer in Christ, every person who has put their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, has eternal life right now, has the Holy Spirit indwelling within them right now to empower them to live for Him today, and in the future, we will be caught up to meet Him in the air and taken back to the Father's house. And as we've seen in our study of Revelation and other places, we believe that will happen before 
this tribulation period begins. Nevertheless, we can see uh, how important it is to understand these teachings about the future because that very spirit of Antichrist, as we will see today, is in the world today and is trying to deceive you into believing things that are false. So it's important to know what the Bible says about these future events. And that's where we find ourselves in our study of Revelation, based on our outline from Revelation 1, 19, the Lord told John to write the things which you have seen. That's the vision of him laying the groundwork for the authority of this book, that it's coming from the risen Christ. The thing, he was to write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, letters to churches that existed at that time, primarily inspiring them to godly living. Uh, turn away from the sin that is in your life. Live for the Lord in spite of your circumstances. That basic messages to those churches. And yes, of course, that same message applies to us today. Then John was to write the things which will take place after these things. Chapters 4 through 22, the end of the book, are future events. The book of Revelation is primarily about the future. We find ourselves in that section that is the tribulation in the second coming, verse uh, chapter 6 through 19, describes in great detail this coming seven-year tribulation period, giving uh, more detail in this book than any other book, really conglomerating all of the information of the Old Testament that talks about this tribulation period and giving even more information and setting it out chronologically for us so we, we can have great faith in the things that we are reading here because it's given with such explicit detail. And again, we have the, the outline here that's on our... Well, I'll just show it to you. Our next slide in case you don't have 2015 vision and can read all of that from where you're sitting there, we have a printout of the exact same thing. And, and this is uh, an outline of these critical chapters in this book, 6 through 19. We've seen the seal judgments. They begin the tribulation period, chapter 6. And then we had our first intermission uh, where the Lord gives to John more information about what is taking place during this period of time. Uh, and then chapters 8 and 9, we had the trumpet judgments. And now we find ourselves in the second intermission that goes all the way from chapter 10 all the way through 15, where we are getting an enormous amount of information about people who will be in the tribulation period, some events that are going to take place. And as we've seen in chapters 12 and 13, uh, chapter 12 primarily, some background information for why any of this is even happening in the first place. Chapter 12, very important for understanding Revelation, that God has a nation the nation of Israel, uh, uh, symbolically described as the woman there in chapter 12, she's going to have a child who is the promised Messiah all the way back from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3. God promised to have a man, a male, a son over and over. We have the gender of this child uh, described in chapter 12 who would come and defeat sin. For the world, he would crush sin, eradicate Satan from this world, and uh, he was to be born from this woman, the nation of Israel. So Satan, he is opposed to God. He is a, therefore opposed to the nation of Israel, opposed to the birth of this child, and wants to prevent him from being born. And after he's born, he wants to devour him. He wants to uh, eliminate him from this world. Revelation 12 tells us, however, that the son was uh, victorious in his fight against sin and his uh, going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And then he was caught up to heaven. It literally 
uh, says there, same Greek word as our, uh, that believers are caught up. Uh, harpazo in the Greek, this male child was caught up to heaven. And so then Satan will now turn his attention to the earth. He wants to eradicate the world of believers. And, and uh, however, he is defeated there as we'll see again here shortly. Uh, but this, this second intermission goes all the way through Revelation uh, 15, and then we'll have the final series of judgments, the bold judgments, which will end with Christ uh, coming again to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And again, last time we finished Revelation 12, we had this angelic warfare, a, a a war in heaven between good angels and bad angels. The good angels we saw headed up by Michael, the bad angels. Uh, leader is Satan, of course. Michael and his angels uh, defeat Satan and the demons, then they are cast to earth. We see, we uh, understand this to be during the tribulation period, is what's being described here in this section of Revelation 12, that Satan will no longer have access to heaven. He will be cast to earth with demonic forces, which gives us a good explanation for why some of the things that we see happening, like demonic locusts coming up out of the abyss, uh, being empowered to hurt people for five months, a demonic army of 200 million uh, riders coming upon the world, killing a third of the population we saw as one of the trumpet judgments, that those kinds of things start to make sense now that we see Satan cast to the earth, his demonic forces with him cast to the earth during the tribulation period. Uh, but the believers and people in heaven have an actual victory and they overcome, we saw, through their faith in Christ and what he has done. Jesus Christ won the battle against sin. You and I don't, uh, we don't defeat sin. Christ did that. So sin is defeated in our personal lives as we walk by faith in what Christ has already done for us. And this, as I mentioned earlier, this victory that Christ won infuriates Satan towards uh, God and towards people who have their faith in God through Jesus Christ. And so he turns his attention, Satan does, to these people and tries to eradicate them. And that's what uh, the anti-Semitism that we see here, the nation of Israel in the future is going to be under direct frontal assault from Satan himself. However, we saw, we got a hint there that the nation is going to be protected by God in Revelation 12. So how is Satan, uh, who are the main principles anyway that Satan is going to use to fight against Israel and believers during the tribulation period? Oh, good question. Revelation 13 tells us who the two main people will be who will fight against Israel and believers. Not the Jewish people will not be the only believers during the tribulation period. We've already seen that, it, that a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation are going to believe in Christ. We saw primarily through the witness of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. So Satan uh, is going to empower a world ruler to do uh, battle against these people. He's going to try to eradicate them. And that's why we've entitled this message, The Coming World Ruler, because we get a lot of information about him in these first 10 verses of chapter 13 and even uh, some more in the rest of the chapter also. But today we'll just uh, sort of introduce him. We're probably going to be here for a few weeks in Revelation 13 uh, because this is, is such a, a critical part of, of the book and of the future. And 
people deny the very uh, words that are in Scripture to try to just put, oh, come on, there isn't going to be an Antichrist. There's no such thing as that. Oh, he already did live. That was Nero. We don't, we don't have to worry about some dictator coming and uh, taking over the world and trying to kill all the Christians and, and Jews in the world. We, that's, that's a conspiracy theory, we're told. Well, the Bible tells us something very different from that. So we'll look at his origin, his organization, and his ordaining this morning. We begin with his origin. Revelation 13 and verse 1, it says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous Names Now, clearly, very clearly, this is symbolic language. There, nobody uh, has discovered a literal uh, beast or animal that has uh, seven heads and ten horns and lives in the ocean and, uh, you know, it comes up all of this kind of thing. Clearly, this is symbolic language that we are dealing with. That doesn't give us license to just uh, dream up in interpretation, we ought to go to other parts of the Bible that use similar language and describe uh, or give us what is being described here with this figurative language. And we're in, we're in good luck <laughs> because we're in luck because uh, the Bible does that for us. So it's not very difficult for us to come up with an interpretation of this figurative Language. Notice first again that Satan is there, the dragon. We saw that last time. Uh, that he is, uh, verse nine. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old. We saw this. This uh, dragon is the one who was in the Garden of Eden, deceiving Eve. He is called the devil. Uh, he is called and Satan who deceives the whole world. This is the one who is who is now pictured as standing on the sand of the seashore, the NASB says, or uh, the, sand, the sand of the sea, perhaps, literally. He is, he's on the coastline, if you will, in this vision that John is, is having here. And he is uh, here prepared to make war against the nation of Israel and against believers People who are demonstrating their faith. Revelation twelve seventeen. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children. Now that the one son, the Messiah, has died for the sins of the world and been caught up to heaven, now Satan turns his attention to the woman and the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is, these are uh, the ones who are being rewarded by Jesus after the tribulation period in Matthew 25, verses 38 through 40. Matthew 24 and 25 being the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' uh, kind of last message during his earthly life to the nation of Israel answering those questions of the disciples, essentially, uh, when is the end of the age going to happen? And, and how are we going to know that? What are going to be the signs of the time and the end of the age? Jesus describes to them uh, what events are going to take place at the end of uh, this age in which we are living that signify we are in the tribulation period and Christ is coming again. After that happens, very clearly in the, the chronology of Matthew 24, he then describes some parables and describes that he is going to reward people for their faithfulness during that tribulation period. We see that in beginning in Matthew 25 in verse 31 known as the sheep and the goat judgments. This is a judgment for the nations, if you'll remember, Gentile people. He divides them into sheep and goats. Before anything is 
said or done in that judgment, they are divided. The Lord knows who are his and who aren't his. The sheep are his. They are the ones who have believed in him as the, as the Messiah of the nation of Israel, as their Savior, the Savior of the world, the one who died for their sins. They are the sheep. They are put on his right hand. The goats are put on his left hand. And then he uh, describes how he is going to reward them for the way that they have lived their lives, the way that they demonstrated their faith in him. And he says, essentially, he says that you helped my people during the tribulation period. You Gentiles, you did uh, good works, essentially, for my people, the nation of Israel. Matthew 25, 38. Uh, And then these people who are rewarded, uh, you know, boy, when did we see a stranger? Uh, and invite you in, and these kinds of things. Verse 38, and when did, when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, or, and clothe you? Jesus says that these people are getting a reward because they helped him. And so they ask, well, when did, I don't remember seeing you and giving you clothes or giving you a place to live. Verse 39, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Jesus' brothers are Israelites, Jewish people. So they are rewarded for helping the Jewish people during the tribulation period because they are under attack here from the dragon and as, as we will see from his Uh, right-hand man, if you will. They are demonstrating the faith that they have in Christ because just like James says, after all, faith without works is dead. It is not carrying out its purpose. Jesus doesn't just save us so that we can uh, come to church and smile at one another and be nice. He wants us to work for him. That's why he is saving us. We are saved to serve him. We, I think that sounds like a good sermon title. I think we might have had that when we were uh, studying Ephesians. He saves us so that we can serve him. James 2.15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and, you do, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use? is that your, your faith in Christ is of no regard if you're not even willing to help people at all. Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. It is, it, dead there does not mean that this person is unsaved. It means that their faith is separated from its purpose in this life. Your, your purpose is to serve the Lord now that he is saved you. Our eternal life is based uh, on one thing and one thing only, whether or not we have trusted in Christ for salvation. We cannot possibly earn our salvation through our works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a myriad of other verses describe that our salvation, our eternal life is based solely on our faith in Christ. It's not based on our religion. Uh, It's not based on what church we go to, whether or not we pray, if we give money to a church, uh, if we've helped 53 old ladies or blind people. I had the experience of being around a lot of blind people this week. Uh, uh, gave a couple of them directions that didn't earn me favor with God. That didn't get me one step closer to heaven. I'm already in heaven because I'm a person who has believed. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Nothing of myself, my good works earns me an iota with the perfect God of the universe. Jesus Christ did that for me on the cross when he died there for my sins. And now I place my trust in what he has done for me. And when I do that, 
God grants Christ's righteousness to me, an imperfect person. He, that's called imputation. He imputes his righteousness to me, and he does the same thing for you at the instant that you put your trust in him. He doesn't do it a moment before or 10 days after. He does it at the second, the instant, the blink of an eye that you say, yes, Lord, I trust in you in your sacrifice for my sins. And, that, and he saves you. But he's not done with you at that point. He wants you to live for him. These people that Satan is doing battle with here in the future are people who have trusted in Christ and are now demonstrating their faith by helping the Jewish people. And notice that Satan is going to use one person in particular to be his man uh, in uh, fighting this war. In the American Revolution, uh, we typically, well, at least if you grew up in my generation and and went to a public school, you spent a lot of time learning about George Washington and the Founding Fathers and these kinds of people. And we look to George Washington as being the the father of our nation. Uh, He was the general during the Revolutionary War, and he was our guy. This Chapter 13 is describing Satan's guy during the coming tribulation period. He is the beast coming up out of the sea. Verse 13 again, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So we can just cut through all of the all of the uh, other answers for who this beast is. This beast is the Antichrist. He is a, a historical person of, who will exist in the future during this tribulation period. Now, does he, is he in the world today? He might be. He might not be. I'm not, I'm not uh, sure on that. There's a whole lot of discussion and commentaries about who uh, this or what this beast is describing is it a is it uh something that happened in the past is it something that's going on now is it something that's just repeated over and over throughout history well the fact of the matter is as we will see this is describing a person who lives in the future now historicists will tell us that oh this beast is the pope or uh, it was Rome, this kind of thing. We'll get into that uh, a little bit here momentarily. Uh, preterists are the ones who will see this as, uh, uh, see the beast as Nero. Uh, preterists, of course, thinking that Revelation is describing the past primarily, uh, leading up to the destruction of the, Jer- the temple in Jerusalem, and the idealists are the ones who see the beast as just generally uh, evil in the world, and it just cycles and repeats over and over, and these kinds of things. Uh, however, the language here is pretty clear that it is describing a person. And uh, notice that he comes from the sea. Now, this is an indication to us that this beast coming up out of the sea is coming from the Gentile nations. Now, why in the world would we say that? Well, we have to fast forward a little bit to Revelation 17, 15, where we get an interpretation for the sea in using figurative language. Here we have in Revelation 17, don't want to steal our thunder for when we get there, but we have a description of this beast and that, that a woman is riding upon the beast and that there are, that this beast is on the waters. Okay. What are the waters? Revelation 17, 15. And he said to me, the waters, which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Very uh, point-blank description there for us of what the sea represents in figurative language. It is the nations. 
the rest of the nations other than Israel. The world, uh, according to God, essentially is, can be broken down into two groups of people, Jewish people and Gentile people. And you're, you are a Jewish person by birth, uh, the same way that you are a Gentile person by birth. You, to be a Jewish person, you are a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you are not uh, born in that line, you are a Gentile person. And the sea is representative of uh, the nations. However, there is, a, there is a myriad of information about the Antichrist in the Bible. I have a list of names that was composed by uh, Arthur Pink. Now, Arthur Pink is one of these people. You have to be careful with what you are reading from him. Some of it is fantastic. Some of it uh, is not fantastic. We'll put it that way. Uh, And he has a list of names of the Antichrist from the Bible that is very extensive. To say that this person will not exist in the future is to just disregard a large portion of the Bible. Uh, The Antichrist is described as the bloody and deceitful man, the wicked one, the man of the earth, the mighty man, the enemy, the adversary, the head of many countries, the violent man, the Assyrian, the king of Babylon, the son, Uh, of the morning, the spoiler, the nail, the branch of the terrible ones, the profane, wicked prince of Israel, the little horn, the prince that shall come, the vile person, on and on and on it goes, describing a lot of these being in the book of Daniel, this person who will exist in the future, ruling over a kingdom of this world. Here we get some information that he comes out of the Gentile nations, and that makes sense with what we understand as uh, being described as the four beasts in the book of Daniel, describing these four kingdoms in the world. This fourth beast is where the Antichrist will come from. That is uh, Rome, and so probably a revived, quote-unquote, revived Roman Empire. That's where this Antichrist is going to come from. But it's also possible that he's a Jewish person, even though he's coming out of a Gentile nation. Now, that's not hard to, hard to believe or hard to understand. They're not, if you hadn't noticed, not all Jewish people live in the nation of Israel. They're spread throughout the world, just as the Bible said that they would after they would be after AD 70, they would be scattered throughout the world. Now, where is this coming from? Well, that's uh, this idea of that even though he is clearly coming from the sea here, he may be a Jewish person. And emphasis on the maybe, not, I don't think we can come to a definite conclusion one way or the other. Daniel 11.36, speaking of this future Antichrist, says, then the king, Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. That's pretty much in line with our text here, Revelation 13. He has blasphemous names. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. Notice verse 37 of Daniel 11. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Again, NASB here. Or the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now the interesting part of Daniel 11.37, he will show no regard for the gods, with a little g, N-A-S-B translates that as, uh, of his fathers. Now, the interesting thing is that that word for, that's translated as gods there in the N-A-S-B is the Hebrew term Elohim, which if you know, if you're familiar at all with Hebrew, you know that that can also be a term for God, big G, the God, the God of Israel. He is described with the, the word Elohim quite often. 
uh, that im on the end being plural, it depends upon the con making the term plural. Uh, that plural term is used to describe the God of the universe. Why would that be? Because he's one God in three persons, as we know. Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So whether, even though the Hebrew, the Israelite people still to this day don't believe in the Trinity, well, they're writers of the Bible, <laughs> knew that God was uh, in a plurality, if you will. So they use the term Elohim to describe him. Now that term Elohim is also used to, to, for false gods, little g, because it is a plural term. So it's up to the discretion of the interpreters. But if we see this as uh, when we look at this term, Elohim of the fathers, in other places in the Bible, it is used I, I hesitate to say exclusive, exclusively, but Elohim of the fathers is a term that is used to describe the God of the fathers of Israel. Uh, and so there is, a, there is a good possibility that this Antichrist will be of Jewish descent, even though he's coming out of probably a European nation from the revived Roman Empire coming here up out of the sea based on Daniel 11.37 and a, a, a possible interpretation of he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. The God of Israel, he may be Jewish. One thing for sure is that he is going to be satanically empowered to do the things that he is going to do. He's here pictured as coming out of the sea. Uh, in other places, he is pictured as coming out of the abyss. We've already seen one of them, Daniel or uh, Revelation eleven seven. when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. He's described as coming out of the abyss in Revelation 17 and verse 8 also. Remember, this is figurative language. So uh, because he's figuratively pictured as coming out of the sea here, coming out of the nations, doesn't mean that God can't in another place say that he comes up out of the abyss because that's where he is getting his power from, from Satan. He is evil uh, personified. And to, uh, when we take all of this evidence together, the Old Testament and New Testament describing a future person who will rule over the entire world and be satanically inspired and empowered to do so, we are disregarding not just the meaning of plain meaning of scripture, but we are disregarding the plain meaning of words, which is very dangerous uh, ground to be on. This person will exist according to scripture, according to the plain meaning of words. He is going to be on this earth, and he is figuratively described here as having ten horns, seven heads. 10 diadems uh, on those horns and blasphemous names. And if you'll remember, this is a very similar description to what we saw in Revelation 12 describing Satan himself. It says there in verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Uh-oh. This beast only has seven diadems. Our beast has 10 diadems here in Revelation 13. Is this a contradiction? Should we just throw out the Bible because uh, one beast has seven and the other one has 10? No, I wouldn't do that. Well, yes, it is a similar description, but there is definitely a shift in perspective from what's being described in chapter 12 and what's being descri described in chapter 13. 
Revelation 12, 3, describing Satan and his animosity towards the nation of Israel throughout history. Revelation 13, describing the Antichrist uh, and his animosity and how he is going to fight against God and his plan in the very end times. And so, uh, Revelation 12 shows seven crowns because that is describing uh, how Satan has empowered nations throughout history to oppose the nation of Israel. And there have been six in the past, and there's still one to come in the future that have primarily been uh, geared towards the nation of Israel. Seven world empires, you see them listed here. Uh, Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Media Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then an end time empire. That makes seven uh, heads, seven world empires. Hence the seven crowns on the heads in Revelation 12. Now we shift perspective to see 10 uh, horns with the crowns on them in the future. That is an indication to us that there's going to be some kind of uh, confederacy of nations. Power is going to be played out in this future end time kingdom through 10 nations that have uh, their power as symbolized in the crowns that are on the heads or on the on the horns in the vision in Revelation 13. And this is the mode through which the Antichrist is going to use his power in this end time kingdom. Remember the beast here in Revelation 13 is describing the Antichrist in Revelation 12. It was describing Satan himself. So he still has seven heads because there have been seven world empires uh, or there have been six, there will be a seventh in the future. The ten horns indicating where the power is going to be exerted through in this end time, uh, through the beast in this end time, uh, one world government. And he also has these blasphemous names. He exalts his kingdom against God is essentially what that means. Uh, and this is where this... Uh, this deconstruction of the created order and all of these kinds of things, when the rubber meets the road, it's, it's blasphemous to uh, have these kinds of relationships that are between men and men and women and women. That's blasphemous because it goes against God's created order. Uh, not recognizing the two genders of male and female is, in the end, it's blasphemy because it is not recognizing the way that we were created. And that's, that, that is precisely what this Antichrist is going to do in the future. Uh, Daniel uh, 7, 8, for one, describes the Antichrist doing this. He says, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, that's why he's, the Antichrist is called the little horn, Came up, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Uh, there are uh, Daniel eleven thirty six. We already saw that he uh, will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. Paul gives us information about this one who will come in the future. 2 Thessalonians 2.4, speaking of the Antichrist, he says that who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is the ultimate in blasphemy. Uh, Revelation 17.3 uh, speaks of these blasphemous names also. And so here he is, th this beast is, has a similar description to Satan himself because he is, 
really the personification of Satan and evil in the world. And he is, the Antichrist is, this coming kingdom in the future. Very similar to the way that Christ is the kingdom in the future. That's why Jesus could say that that the kingdom is in your midst when he was standing and debating with the Pharisees. Here it is. I'm it. Believe in me, Jesus is saying. If you will only believe in me, trust in me, your sins will be forgiven. And nation of Israel, we can have this kingdom right now because I am it. He, he encapsulates, he personifies the kingdom, Jesus does. Well, Satan, being an imitator of God, is going to attempt to do exactly the same thing. So this beast is described in almost identical terms to Satan himself because he is evil personified. He is this coming kingdom like we will see in Revelation 17, the harlot riding upon this beast who looks an awful lot like the one described here in Revelation 13. It all conglomerates together in uh, a satanically inspired world empire being run by this uh, man, the little horn, who comes out of the sea, possibly of Jewish uh, descent, who is the one ruling over this coming kingdom. The end time kingdom is the Antichrist and uh, the Antichrist is the kingdom all energized by Satan. That's why he is described in this way. Notice also his organization in, in Revelation 13, 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard And his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. He is like a leopard. Uh, His feet are like a bear, and his mouth is like a lion. These are all the characteristics that were, uh, these beasts are, that are being used here to, to describe the Antichrist We've seen those before in Daniel chapter 7. The vision of the four beasts, these four coming uh, kingdoms in Daniel's time, uh, the Lord revealed to him one time in a statue, if you'll remember, Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold, chest of silver, waist of bronze, legs of iron, describing four kingdoms. There were also four beasts used to describe that kingdom, Daniel chapter seven in the first verse one, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed and he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea from out among the nations. That means different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Verse five, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. Uh, Verse six, after this, I kept looking. Behold, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So this future world kingdom is a a conglomeration, a coming together of all of these past kingdoms that were introduced by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And notice here is where we get the idea that this end times kingdom is going to be energized by Satan. It plainly says it here in the end of verse two, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Satan has plenty of power. We can see that in Job, uh, the book of Job chapters one and two. He, He is allowed by God to do certain things we see there 
in the book of Job. Uh, Jude chapter 9, uh, Jude says that Michael didn't dare pronounce a judgment against Satan. Instead, he turned to the Lord. The Lord uh, rebuke you. Michael, the perhaps the most powerful of all of God's angels, doesn't want to fight himself against Satan. He relies on the Lord. Uh, Satan's throne is given to this coming world leader, this Antichrist. Uh, this is uh, what... Satan offered to Christ in the temptation in the wilderness, if you will just worship me, Satan said to Jesus during that time, Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can rule over everything. This authority, this kingdom, this uh, essentially the whole world has been given to me. I have taken it and I'll give it to you, Jesus, if you will just worship me. Jesus, of course, says no He won't do that. This person will say, yes, I will do that. And uh, people people like to say that, oh, that, you know, there could be the Antichrist could be here today. Uh, Satan uh, is just waiting for his time. He's always got one prepared. You know, I, okay, that might be, but I don't know a lot of politicians who if Satan came up to them today and said, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. If you'll just worship me, I'll give it to you. Uh, I can think of a few off the top of my head right now who I guarantee you would say yes. Uh, So Satan is waiting for a particular person, I believe. And this person will say yes, and he is going to be worshiped. Now the world has... Revelation 2.13, we studied that the world has worshipped uh, uh, leaders in the past and that there, there's something behind this. Revelation 2.13, one of the churches was told, and I know you're living right where Satan's uh, throne is. Nevertheless, uh, Satan also has great authority in this world. He is the God of this age. He's the prince and power of this world. Ephesians 2, John 12 describes this. And there's coming a time when he is going to be worshipped. And that spirit of worshipping this Antichrist is already here. 1 John uh, 2 talks about this. Here's a uh, uh, picture that I actually just took. This week, when I was I uh, stayed in New Orleans this week, we used to just call this the Superdome. On our, from our hotel going to the airport, we drive right past it, and we were stopped at a stoplight. And I just saw out of the corner of my eye, I see this giant. <laughs> you don't really, I'm not sure if you can make it out here, but the Superdome is a Superdome. It is massive, and when you see this. This is a picture of Caesar on the side of this thing at nighttime, and it's illuminated, and you can't miss it. Now, over here, it says this is Caesar's Superdome, so I understand that uh, Caesar's, this is probably Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, a casino, now owns the Superdome, I guess. I've never, I've driven past here 50 times, and this is the first time that it's ever been Caesar's, so apparently they just bought it. Nevertheless, uh, Wow, that after just having studied Revelation 13, that kind of got my attention that, that yes, the world is ready to worship one man. And that, so that spirit, just like John says in 1 John 2, is definitely alive. It is definitely here. And it is contained really in anything that goes against God and his, his word. And so when we try to unify in the church around things that aren't based in truth, this is the very spirit of Antichrist. We saw last time that Satan is the father of lies. He is the anti-truth. That, that is him. He is embodied in deception and lying. 
And so uh, just do some research on the Methodist church, of the Methodist denomination. Nothing against the people in particular, but the denomination and some of the things that they are voting on lately. They're trying to grasp at unity that's not based in truth. And that is a very real problem. We can only have unity that's based in truth, and God's word is truth, John 17, 17. It has, unity can only come through uh, a common faith in the truth of God's word. Anything else is a spirit of antichrist because it's based in deception and man's thinking. So we need to be very careful that we're not uh, worshiping Satan's coming leader who is definitely going to try to unify the world around his version of the truth and very quickly his ordaining probably not even very quickly because i don't think we're going to be able to get through that quickly uh this uh coming world leader is going to have some sort of fatal wound and we will uh we will that's the cliffhanger. You'll have to come out next time to see what the, the fatal wound is. So as we uh, look at this coming world ruler, we see that he is a very real person who will exist in this world. There's no other really way to get around the language of the fact that this person is coming into the world and the world is... is desperately hoping for it today. The press uh, a few months ago were, were very fickle in this world today, but uh, a few months ago when Russia invaded Ukraine, the, the world press oh so desperately wanted Zelensky to be the man who will help us to unify around uh, rainbows and puffy clouds, I guess. I'm not, I'm not really... Not really sure there why we would want to do that, but that's what the world is desperately seeking for, is one man to to believe in, to trust in, who can solve the world's problems. If we can just get rid of these uh, people who believe in God and are uh, so judgmental to think that there might possibly be a right and wrong in the world. If we can just get rid of them, then we can all unify around uh, something. And that something that is described in Revelation is Satan himself. So we want to be very careful about what we are uh, believing in and trusting in. And yes, there is one who can and has, in fact, solved all of our problems. And he is the man, the God-man, the, the son, eternal Son of God who stepped out of eternity and into this world, lived a perfect life, and gave his life for our sins because our, our problems are not the high gas prices. They're not taxes. They're not... Uh, who can vote and who can't vote, that's not our number one problem. Our number one problem is that we are sinners and that we, uh, by that sin, we are separated from God for eternity. But God, in His grace, came into this world and lived a perfect life and sacrificed it for us on the cross so that we can now have the forgiveness of our sins by trusting in Him and praise the Lord for that, and, the, and he will be the world ruler who will truly solve all of our problems. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that so clearly describes so much of the future that we are without excuse if we are uh, believing in something different than what your word says. I thank you that you so clearly give us the details of these future events so that we are not uh, betrayed now, so that we can have uh, uh, an understanding of what the world is moving towards so that we are not deceived into trusting in those kinds of things today. Instead, we trust in you. We trust in you and your shed blood for our sins, and I thank you for that, and I pray that we would 
be edified as a body of believers in the truth of your word, that, that the Holy Spirit would empower us to live according to your word, to serve one another, to love one another, and trust and uh, live for you each moment of the day. I pray that you would help us to do that in the week to come, and we ask for your will to be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great day.